Turn this evening to First Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles 16 verse 29 has been selected by the consistory as the theme verse for family visitation this year. And so this evening we will consider this text with a view toward uh, this being brought up again in our homes when the elders and pastor come to visit for family visitation. We're going to read the first 36 verses, 1 through 36 of 1 Chronicles 16. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. They offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. When David had made an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he dealt to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to every one a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. He appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, Jael, and Shemai-Ramoth, and Jehiel, and Mattathiah, and Eliab, and Benaiah, and Obed-Edom, and Jael with psalteries and harps, but Asaph made a sound with cymbals. Benaiah also, and Jehaziel the priests with trumpets, continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And on that day David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord your God. His judgments are in all the earth. Be mindful always of His covenant, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations, even of the covenant which He made with Abraham, and of His oath unto Isaac, and hath confirmed the same to Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, when ye were but few, even a few, and strangers in it. And when they went from nation to nation, and from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, And do my prophets no harm. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Show forth from day to day His salvation. 
Declare His glory among the heathen, His marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in His presence. Strength and gladness are in His place. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. The world also shall be stable, that it be not moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. And let men say among the nations, The Lord reigneth. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the fields rejoice, and all that is therein. Then shall the trees of the wood sing out at the presence of the Lord, because He cometh to judge the earth. O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. And say ye, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us together, and deliver us from the heathen, that we may give thanks to Thy holy name and glory in Thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. The text again that we consider this evening, as well as for family visitation, is the 29th verse. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the more that one studies the holiness of God, the beauty of His holiness, and the glory of God, which glory is due to His name and to none other, the more one is struck at human inability to comprehend the holiness and the greatness of our God. The more that one reads commentaries and reads books about what is the holiness of our God, what is the character of His holiness, the more one is struck at the fact that God is divine. His glory is in the heavens and we are but dust creatures 
are attempting to gaze upon the glory of a God who is a consuming fire and who will destroy anything, anyone that is not holy as He is holy. Who can fathom the holiness of God? There's limitations that we have in our mind. Who can say that intellectually he or she has the ability to understand and to put in human terms to which we can relate to the holiness of God? And then besides the intellectual limitations that we face as fallen creatures who have but glimmerings of light, there also are, are there not, spiritual and moral limitations? Who could go into the presence of the God who is holy, 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 gaze upon Him, and then come back and tell the people, this is the holiness of God. Moses was blinded at seeing just a glimpse of the backside of the holiness of God. Who is worthy to come into His presence and worship Him in the beauty of His glory? The context in which this psalm was written, it's a psalm of David recorded later in the Psalms. The context in which this was written was after the Ark of the Covenant had been brought up into Jerusalem. The children will remember that the first attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant up from the house of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem did not go very well. They used the wrong means, the wrong manner of bringing that Ark up. They put that Ark upon an ox cart. The oxen stumbled, the cart shook. The Ark was about ready to fall off into the dirt. Uzzah reached out his arm to prevent the ark of God from falling into the dirt, and he was immediately struck dead. Who is worthy to come into the presence of the holy God? But then a second effort was put forth by David to bring the ark up into Jerusalem, And that effort was done in a way which was accord with the instruction that God had given for how they were to carry the ark. And that second effort then was met with God's blessing. They brought the ark up into Jerusalem. It's there in the tabernacle. And now David is offering this psalm of rejoicing. And it's in that context then with much elation and happiness that David instructs the people, give, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, 
bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worshiping Jehovah in His glory. First we'll consider what is the motive for doing this. So important that we have a proper motive. Second, the duty. Look there at the command to worship Him. And then third, the blessedness of doing that. The motive, the duty, the blessedness. Beloved congregation, as you prepare for family visitation, I exhort you and with your spouse, if you are married, with your children, if God has given you children, to consider why do we worship God? Why do we assemble in the house of God? Why is it our practice together, not just once, but even twice in the house of God on Sunday? The motive for one's worship is of utmost significance. If one has the wrong motive for coming into the house of God, then eventually the worship of God will become meaningless unto that individual. The person who is not prompted by a a proper biblical desire to worship God in the beauty of holiness will find that after a while the joy of worship services just evaporates out of him. It no longer seems to be a blessing unto him or her to come into God's house. It seems as if one goes into God's house simply because that's what's expected of me. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't come into God's house. And so taking the path of least resistance, it's easier for me to go into the house of God than to have to face the shame, the ridicule, the correction that would come from others for not coming into God's house. Why? Why do we teach our children to come worship the Lord. It is so easy for us, is it not, to slip into the habit of having wrong motives for coming into the house of God. We'll list a few of them this evening. You may consider other wrong motives. And search your own heart for what wrong motives there might be in your heart or in mine. There can be the wrong motive of coming to worship because I want to get something out of this service. I'm going to come to God's house with the expectation that something will be giving me throughout the course of this worship service. Perhaps that which will be given me is some sort of congratulatory pat on the back that you've done a good job. Keep up on doing a good job. Perhaps we come into God's house expecting that we will be praised for what we have done. 
Perhaps we come into God's house expecting, hoping that we're going to be intellectually challenged in some way. After all, is it not the duty of the preacher to to harvest some deep truth out of the Word of God? And that preacher really should be setting forth this deep and profound truth before us. And so, I come into the house of God expecting that the minister is going to challenge me intellectually. That my brain is going to be stimulated as I come into the house of God. What is your motive for coming to worship? Is it because I expect to receive something myself? from the worship service. It's another wrong, faulty reason for coming to God's house. For young people and for young adults, the temptation can be to come to God's house simply because mom and dad expect it of me. Simply because mom and dad will be disappointed And I don't want to let down mom and dad. I don't want to have to face their look when I don't come to his house anymore. I know that it's going to be grievous to them. And so simply out of respect for mom and dad, I come into God's house. Now that's not to say that as young people and young adults, We may simply disregard what mom and dad say, that their words have no weight as they instruct us and call us to come into the house of God. But this is to say our motive for coming into the house of God must not simply be to appease mother and father. Why? Why do we come? Why do some no longer come to the house of God? As they go out the door and don't come back again, what are they saying? Some no longer come into the house of God because they feel that they never really fit in in the house. They never really found someone that they connected to. And so because they didn't feel welcomed or embraced within the fellowship of the members of the church, then they go somewhere else where hopefully they can be more welcomed and more warmly received in that congregation. Why else? Why do some no longer come to worship? Perhaps for some it's mere apathy. They no longer care about coming to God's house. It's not that they're angry at anyone in the house of God, but it's simply that they're bored by coming into God's house Sabbath day after Sabbath day. They no longer find it to be exciting. It's no longer thrilling unto them, and perhaps they've encountered some trials and some difficulties in life. And so like that plant that grew up that had rocks, underneath the ground, and then the sun came down and beat upon that plant. That plant withered up and died. And so it is that some, out of mere apathy, no longer desire to come to God's house. 
What brings you here? Psalmist here gives unto the child of God a most compelling reason for coming into the house of the Lord. It has nothing to do with you, with your feelings, with your wants, and with your desires. But this has to do with God. We come into the house of God because our God is a glorious God who dwells in the beauty of holiness. That is to be the primary incentive for the child of God. This is why I respond positively when I hear the call go out unto me to come into the house of the Lord so that I might give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name so that I might worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's why I worship God because my God is a holy, holy, holy God. And the whole earth is filled with His glory. That is what fills the Christian's heart with joy and with a desire to come and to admire the greatness and the transcendence of our thrice holy God. And we ask again the question that we asked in the introduction, who is sufficient to comprehend the holiness of God. What even is this idea that God is the holy, holy, holy God who dwells in the beauty of holiness? The holiness of God, we teach the catechumens, means that God is both separate and God is consecrated. And we teach the catechumens that God is separate from all that is evil and that God is consecrated to all that is good. But beloved, there's something even more fundamental to to the holiness of God than that. Even more fundamental when we consider the holiness of God is this, that God is holy and entirely other. And when we say that God is entirely other, what we mean is that God is wholly separate from entirely other than that which is the creature. God is not the creature, but God is the Creator God. The independent God who depends on no one, who needs nothing out of Himself. He is the God who is the highest good And because He is the highest good, and He is consecrated to that which is good, therefore God is consecrated unto Himself. That's the holiness of God. And then because God is holiness and dwells in the beauty of holiness, then that means that of course then that God is separate from all that is evil and from all that is ungodly. God hates, He loathes, 
Anything that is impure and that is not just and upright before Him. We worship God because our God is greater than us. Who would want to worship something or someone who is lesser? That's what every idol is. It's the figment of man's imagination created out of gold, silver, wood, shaped by the hands of man and is less than man. But we worship God because our God is infinitely greater than us. Holiness. Who could stand? before such a God. In order to come into the presence of this holy God, one must be holy as God is holy. Psalm 5, verse 4, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Who may come? We can learn about coming into the presence of the Holy God by learning from the Old Testament Israelites. As the Old Testament Israelites would send an individual into first the tabernacle and then the temple built by Solomon. And as we look at how men went into especially the most holy place, we can learn about how one is to come unto God. The Old Testament Scriptures make clear that not just anybody could walk into that most holy place. Recall with me what was in the most holy place. There was the Ark of the Covenant. David has just brought this up into Jerusalem and put it now in the tabernacle. Who could go into that most holy place? Only an individual who was called by God. God was the one who anointed the priests, the holy priests, to be the ones who could go into that most holy place. The priests would go on behalf of the congregation and the nation of Israel. And so it was not necessary for everyone to go in there, but the priests would go in on behalf of the people in order to offer a sacrifice for the nation. But there is a problem. And the problem was that the priests themselves had sins that needed to be atoned for. And so the priests, before they could go into this most holy place, themselves had to bathe. They had to be purified physically. And that purification physically was a picture of internal and spiritual purification. And then, after the priest had cleansed himself, then the priest was to put on special clothing. A holy garment, the Scriptures call it. And that holy garment pictures that the priest of himself still had within him that which would make him 
unholy before God. And so he needed the holy garments of God to cover him before he went into the most holy place. And yet even then, the Scriptures inform us that there were bells which were connected to this garment that the priest would wear. And those bells would jangle as he would walk into the most holy place and would be used as an indicator to the people standing outside of the most holy place of whether he was alive or had been struck dead. If you no longer could hear the jingling of the bells, then you would know that the priest had been consumed by the holiness of God. And then finally, we know with regard to the priest, as he would go into the most holy place, that he was not to go into the most holy place without blood. But he was to take the blood of the Lamb, the Paschal Lamb, and he was, after having killed that lamb and collected the blood in a bowl, then to take that blood and to sprinkle that blood over the mercy seat and over the ark of the covenant. What do we learn from all of this about the Old Testament priests going into the most holy place? What we learn, beloved, is this that the closer one will be to God, the holier that individual must be. Is one going to walk close unto God? Is one going to heed the admonition of this text to bring an offering and come before Him? then there must be a purification, a process of sanctification for that individual in order that he might come before the thrice holy God. Otherwise, that individual will be struck dead, even as the Old Testament priests would be struck dead if they did not come in holiness. And so we observe that, on the one hand, the holiness of God is a fearful thing. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But on the other hand, this text emphasizes not so much the dread of the holiness of God, but this text speaks of the beauty of God's holiness. It says, come before Him, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that's a remarkable thought as well, is it not? That the holiness of God is beautiful. It is because God is the holy, holy, holy God that He is strikingly, stunningly beautiful. How can we even begin to understand the beauty of this holy God? Perhaps we can illustrate the beauty of God's holiness this way by setting before our mind's eye a beautiful marriage. A healthy, 
Christian marriage. And in that marriage, there is love that flows from the husband to the wife and from the wife to the husband. They seek one another and pursue one another. And in this godly Christian marriage, there is good communication between the husband and the wife. They are open one with another. They do not withhold things from each other. They are not distant or aloof one from another, but there is intimacy and closeness that's revealed by their speech to each other. And then within this beautiful marriage, there is trust. The husband trusts his wife and does not try to micromanage her. And the wife trusts her husband and does not constantly critique and criticize what he is doing. There's grace in this marriage. Where the husband is willing to let go of faults that his wife has committed against him, and the wife does not hold grudges against her husband, but they forgive one another. Now, if we were to see such an ideal Christian marriage exemplified by a godly husband and wife upon this earth, we would look at that and we would say, wow, what a beautiful marriage that is, as the husband and the wife live together in holiness, one with another. And so it is that in that picture of the marriage, in that marriage, we have a picture of what it is that God dwells in the beauty of holiness. That God loves Himself as the highest good, and there is absolutely nothing that mars the visage of God. God the Father loves the Son as the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. And the Son loves the Father as that Son is begotten of the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and unite the Father and the Son together in the bond of holiness, for He is the Holy Spirit of God. And there is absolutely nothing that tarnishes or that takes away from the beauty of God as He dwells in the holy and perfect holiness. He is pure light, and there is no darkness in Him at all. He is good and the overflowing fountain of all good. There is no corrupt communication that proceeds from His lips. There is no distrust between the Father and the Son. But there is open and honest and loving communication and intimacy between the three persons of the Holy Godhead as they dwell in the beauty of holiness. And as we begin to understand how beautiful our God is, then does that not excite within us a desire to worship Him? 
And that's precisely the duty that we have, as the psalmist calls us to do that in this text. Four words he uses to describe the duty that we have to God. Give, bring, come, worship. Give unto the Lord the glory due to Him. Bring an offering. Come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. All of these are differing ways of speaking of the same calling that we have to worship God. To worship Jehovah, the I Am that I Am, is to adore Him. It is to acknowledge His worth and His greatness. And it is to thank Him for what He has done for us. Worship. It is to bend the knee before Him. A figurative expression of how small and how finite I am as I come into the presence of the transcendent God. Worship. It's bringing unto Him Bring unto Him an offering, David says here. Bring Him a bloodless offering, for He already has given up His Son, Jesus Christ, as a bloody offering. Worship. It is exalting His worth and acknowledging His omnipotence over all things. Striking that the psalmist here, as he gives us this calling to worship God, does not take into account certain things. He does not take into account how man is feeling on this day. He does not take into account what man wants and what man desires. He does not come unto the nation of Israel and say unto them, if this would make you feel happier, if this would make you feel good, then may I gently advise of you that you come unto the Lord and worship Him in the beauty of holiness. This does not mean that the psalmist had no care or no regard for the feelings or the needs of God's people But this means here that David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, understood that to worship God is the duty of man. It's the calling that God gives unto us. And so who are we then to object or complain when the thrice holy God calls unto us to come before Him and to worship Him? And then notice this as well that we are taught about how we are to worship Him. Not just the necessity of worshiping Him, but the manner of worshiping Him. Worship involves giving of myself. Bring 
the psalmist says, an offering. Take something of which God has given unto you and bring it unto the Lord to thank Him for what He has done for you. Worship Him in the proper manner as God has prescribed in His Word. How serious is this matter of the manner of worship? So serious that Uzzah was dead as a result of doing it the wrong way. Man does not determine how or when or in what manner he is going to worship God, but God in His Word calls the Christian to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we do well to consider as well then the question as parents, are we teaching our children that God is the one who calls us to worship? And are we teaching our children that God is the one who instructs us when and in what manner we are to worship God? If we as parents are setting a poor example before our children and yet admonishing them that they ought to be worshiping God in the beauty of holiness, then our children will learn more from our example than from the formal instruction that we give unto them. How can we be a poor example? We can be a poor example by picking and choosing when we are going to have family worship. If we as parents, if we as fathers are too busy tonight to have devotions with the family so that the children are asking, where's dad? Well, dad's too busy to join us for devotions tonight. Then the children will learn, will grow up learning that devotions are optional. And if one is too busy for devotions, well, then that's understandable. What are we teaching our children about the importance of worship? Are we scheduling vacations before worship? Are we prioritizing ourselves and our own wants and needs before worship? This is a serious matter. For God is holy. The only way that we can worship God appropriately is by His name. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. And what is the name of God except the revelation of God unto us? It is by the names of of God, which names God has given unto Himself, that we who are creatures of this earth are able to know who God is. It is by God's names that God who is heavenly and divine condescends to us who are of this earth, and God makes Himself known unto us. And who then is the name of God, 
The name of God is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the name of God. To worship God by His name and through His name is to worship God by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament office of priest. Just as the priests would go into that most holy place, called by God, anointed by God with the Spirit, not without blood, to make atonement for the sins of God's people. So Jesus Christ went to that place where He stood before the holiness of God. He went as one who was called by God. He went as one who was anointed by the Spirit of God. He went to the place where no man else could go He stood before the God who is holy, holy, holy. And what was the result of Jesus Christ standing before the thrice holy God? He was killed by the holiness and the justice of God. Through His death, satisfaction was made for the sins that you and I have committed. And now through Jesus Christ, and by Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, we now draw nigh unto the Father. Without Jesus Christ, there is no drawing nigh unto God. Without Jesus Christ, man might boast of who he is. Man might brag of his accomplishments and what he has done. But without Jesus Christ, man stands condemned by the holiness of God. But in and through Jesus Christ, the holiness of God no longer is something that fills us with dread terror. But the holiness of God through the death of Jesus Christ becomes unto us something very attractive and beautiful. We yearn to be in the presence of the holy God so that the pure light of His countenance can shine down upon us by Christ and by Christ only, who is the name of God, we give glory unto the thrice-holy Creator. And so we teach this to our children, do we not? That's why we support Christian, Christ-centered education. So that in all of the subjects that are taught, the children can see that God is the Almighty Creator who stands behind us, and that Jesus Christ is the one who has redeemed this creation and God's children unto the Creator. That's why we love to send our children to catechism. 
so that the children can hear in catechism about what Christ has done for them. That's why we love Bible study. Whether the Bible study be in our homes as families, or whether the Bible study be with God's saints in in the congregation, we love to hear of what Jesus Christ has done as Jesus draws us unto the Father who dwells in the beauty of holiness. Come. Come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And the blessedness of doing this is that God's name will be magnified. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our reputation. It's not about what we leave behind. It's not about what others think about us. But it's about God and His name that will be glorified. God's name will be glorified. If we do not glorify His name, then the rocks will cry out in acknowledgement of their Creator. God will be glorified not because He is egotistical, not because God is vain. You might ask, why? Why is God so concerned about His name receiving the glory? Isn't that kind of self-centered of God for Him to want all of the glory for Himself, to be jealous for glory? It's not because God is egotistical or self-centered that God is jealous for glory we must understand is that there's a difference between boasting about what I am not and on the other hand, calling attention to what I truly am. It would be one thing for me to boast of something that I am not. If I were to boast that I had some superhero ability that would be vain and self-centered of me, to brag in that way. But it is not boasting for me to say who I truly am. To say that I am a man. To say that I am a husband, father, pastor. That's not bragging, but it's a statement and an acknowledgement of truth. Well, so it is for God. When God calls us to give glory that is due unto His name, God is not boasting of something that He is not. God is not seeking something that He does not deserve. But God is calling us to acknowledge Him for who He truthfully is. He is the God who dwells in the beauty of holiness. And now He calls you and me to acknowledge Him as such. 
by God's grace, as we have done in the past, we will continue giving unto God the glory. And as we do that, beloved, the blessedness for you and for me is that God is pleased to draw us together in that way. God's people who assemble together for the purpose of giving God the glory will be knit together in love for the covenant-keeping God. We have said throughout the course of this sermon that it's not about you. It's not about me or my wants or my feelings. And yet, the amazing love of God is this, that as God's children worship Him in the way that He has ordained then God in His tender loving care blesses His people as a congregation and knits them together as part of the body of Jesus Christ. You see, what is required for us to give this type of worship unto God? What is required to give glory unto His name? To worship Him in the beauty of holiness does it not require humility? An emptying of myself to seek the glory of someone infinitely greater than me. And as God works in your hearts, humility, whereby you are emptied of vain and proud thoughts, God is pleased to draw together His humble, God-honoring people and knit them together in love as part of the body of Jesus Christ. May God so graciously grant unto us that the blessed fruit of worshiping Him in spirit and in truth is that we grow not only in our fervency of love for Him, but that we also grow in our fervency of love for one another. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, how great Thou art, and greatly to be praised. Who are we that Thou art mindful of us? Who are we that Thou didst send Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us? May we stand in awe of Thy glory. May we worship Thee in the beauty of holiness. And may we have hearts filled with love for Thee and for the neighbor. For Jesus' sake, we pray this. Amen.